When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everybody. Welcome to New Books and Psychoanalysis. I'm your host for today, J.J. Mull, and I'm thrilled to be here today coming to you from Western Massachusetts with Daniel Jose Getzenbide, um, who, you know, it is, I think it's a trope on things like this to say that you're excited to, to be with folks on the program, but I really just want to emphasize how legitimately and truly um, excited I am to, to have Daniel on the program. And so just by way of introduction, Danielle Jose Gatsambide is originally from San Juan, Puerto Rico, where he first learned about psychology from books his mother would read to him and about the impact of society on the psyche from the lessons his father imparted on race and class. He is the assistant director of clinical training in the Department of Psychology at the New School for Social Research and director of the Franz Fanon Lab in Intersectional Psychology. He is also a practitioner in private practice and an analytic candidate at the NYU postdoctoral program in psychotherapy and psychoanalysis, where he is a candidate member of the postdoc Senate and the Committee on Ethnicity, Race, Culture, Class, and Language. So Daniel, welcome to the program. Um, I'm super excited to be talking about your book, A People's History of Psychoanalysis from Freud to Liberation Psychology, um, which came out from Lexington Books last year, but is coming out in paperback soon, or has already come out in paperback? Uh, or? Uh, yeah, April 15th. April 15th. April t- so two weeks, my God, yeah. Fantastic. I mean, I, I, also, I also wanted to share, I enjoy uh, moonlight walks on the beach, uh, not part of my biography. No, I'm similarly um, super excited to be here. We've had a lot of exchanges over email over um, the book and what we'd like to talk about. So I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Fantastic. So, so yeah, keep your eyes peeled, everybody, for the paperback edition. Use a chunk of your stimulus check or whatever it is. Buy a copy. It'll be great. But anyways, let's jump right in. You know, it's usually on the program, folks tend to start with just the kind of broad stroke question of what brought you to write the book in question, both maybe just sort of personally in your life, intellectually, kind of what are you up to in this book? Sort of what what kinds yeah. of interventions are you making and what is kind of the story behind it? Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, like in some ways, I think I've been writing this book all, all my life in a way. You know, like I appreciated you sharing from the bio, just that little background of like where I come from and my own kind of upbringing, because it really was just embedded in my life. Like my mother was a secretary for our church growing up, which was called Umiferio Sanador por una Iglesia Sanadora, a healing ministry by a healing church. And our pastors were very psychologically minded, very community oriented. Um, psychoanalysis just felt kind of normal, like a part of how we just think about things in the world. And so from, you know, most kids at like five, six, seven, want to be like astronauts and firemen, whatever. And I was like, I would be a psychoanalyst. Like it was pretty locked in for me. Right. But then when I came stateside, um, like around 2002 or so to go to school, um, I encountered this idea that psychoanalysis is Western, European, cis-heteronormative structure or movement or theory, and therefore has nothing to do and nothing to say to people from the global South, communities of color that are marginalized and oppressed. And I found that so strange, given how embedded in community it was for me. So I was kind of navigating for a while, like, okay, what, what is psychoanalysis really about? And at the time, it was like, well, Freud is sort of the encapsulation of everything that's bad in psychoanalysis, right? Old white man, cisgender, racist, sexist, et cetera. So I'm like, okay, so that's psychoanalysis is bad. And then I'm introduced to relational psychoanalysis, right? Oh, this is the good contemporary social justice oriented psychoanalysis. So I kind of carried that split for a while. Like I identified as relational. I studied with relational people. Much of my early ways of working, especially in graduate school, were very relationally oriented. But then through a very wild, circu circuitous turn of events, um, the first time I applied to doctoral school, um, but to make a long story short, one of the places I applied to said, you know, close buddy, but no cigar. But here's our one-year master's program and no funding. And I was like, oh, oh that that's not going to be good for me because I was kind of in a precarious state in life when it came to like money and housing and all that. And um, in an absolutely random way, my mentors at Rutgers undergrad, where I did my, you know, this kind of double major in psych and religion, they recommended I apply to Union Theological Seminary. And I'm like, I am uh, a heathen. Why are you sending me to a seminary? And the reasoning was uh, this: this would have been, you know, George Atwood, who's retired now from Rutgers undergrad, and James Jones—not that James Jones, the good James Jones—who <laughs> was a, a psychoanalyst of religion, right? And they both recommended I go to Union because it was one of the bastions of liberation theology and critical race theory here in the United States. And they also had a psychoanalytic program, or I should say a psychoanalytically informed program, because it wasn't really um, towards licensure. It was more academic. I got a letter from Union offering me two years, a full ride, and housing. Now, I, I expand that story a little bit, because, you know, when I, when I came stateside, I'd grown up, you know, thinking of myself as a straight-A student. But the moment I arrived at Rutgers, all this rhetoric of you're an affirmative action admission, you don't really belong here, you don't have the stuff 
like somehow being um, Puerto Rican, being a person of color, et cetera, meant you somehow don't have the apparatus to think psychologically. That, that was another piece that was developing in undergrad and then kind of in some ways became more pronounced the deeper I got into academia, that somehow people of color and people of the global South are not psychologically minded, despite the fact that Latin America has some of the largest concentration of psychoanalysts in the world. But apparently that was the thing, right? So when I was at Union, there was this um, real big conflict between folks who represented a psychoanalytic perspective more focused on, let's understand the depths of individual experience and how the individual connects with um, the numinous, their ultimate concern, right? And then on the other hand, you had all the folks who were liberation theology, um, critical race theory, and really focus more on the social and the systemic. And I was kind of in between trying to understand how these two ways of thinking relate, which in turn meant how do psychoanalysis and liberation theology relate? Um, it was in a class with Ann Yulinov, who was the chair of the uh, psychoanalysis, the psychiatry and religion program there at the time. She invited uh, Claude Barbara, who was, um, I think at the time, he may have been the chair um, at the Chicago School of Professional Psychology, he might have been a faculty member, but he came and he gave a talk on Ignacio Martín Baró and Latin American liberation psychology. And my brain was crackling. I was like, there's a liberation psychology, like tell me more. And it was he who put me on to Martin Baro and Paulo Freire. Now, Paulo Freire, um, for folks who don't know, he was a Brazilian educator who um, developed the synthesis of essentially, as I go into in the book, of liberation theology, Marxist thought, um, and psychoanalytic theory, both from Eric Fromm, and also from Franz Fanon. So at the time, though, he wasn't framed to me that way. He was framed as on the side of liberation theology and psychology, right? So I start to read Paulo Freire's work, and I start to notice, oh, he talks about intersubjectivity in the teacher-student relationship, and how there's something about the process of addressing ruptures, what we might call ruptures and enactments, between teacher and student that not just reflects a tension between the two of them, but that enacts broader tensions in society. And if teacher and student can hold that, that creates a space to then talk about the world that they're embedded in, socially, politically, economically, and so forth. And at the time, I was reading a lot of Jessica Benjamin's work on intersubjectivity and mutual recognition. And, um, when I was reading her, uh, I think it was Bonds of Love, she brought in a metaphor about the teacher-student relationship and inner subjectivity and so on and so forth. So I was like, oh, well, maybe, maybe there's a parallel and therefore an integration that I could make between liberation theology and psychology and psychoanalysis. Now, kind of parallel to all of this, um, I was very lucky that I was able to um, take classes with James Cone, who was um, one of the founders of Black theology and Black liberation theology, and who kind of introduced me to this broader world. Um, when I was reading him and talking to him and, and working in his course, um, there were a lot of aspects to 
black theology that allowed me or opened space for me to think about um, different questions related to race and specifically anti-blackness in Puerto Rico, both globally as well as in my own family history, how I come to be, because to put it bluntly, bodies like mine don't just grow on palm trees. They're built and they're built um, essentially built by systems that, yes, they're grounded in white supremacy, but more fundamentally, the pool from which people draw is anti-blackness. So I'm having all these different pieces in my head and trying to figure out how they come together. And I'm thinking these are all totally separate and I have to do the work of integrating them. As I'm thinking through that, um, I talk in the book uh, of the story when I was in the, the stacks at Burke Library at Union, and I'm trying to find one of Jessica's books. And I, I literally like trip, <laughs> I trip over this, this little tower of books I'm holding flies everywhere. And as I'm like gathering myself up, I see Freud's free clinics. I see the book with that title, Freud's free clinics. And I'm like, what, what is that about? So I borrowed that book, um, which is Elizabeth Danto's book, Freud's Free Clinic, Psychoanalysis and Social Justice, 1918 to 1938, I think is the full title. Um, and then I proceed to never read the book <laughs> for the remainder of my time at Union yeah. until, um, until after I get into Rutgers for my doctoral studies and I'm packing stuff up and I find her book again. And I'm like, oh, shit, I haven't had this book. So I grab it. I sit down on a box of packed stuff. And I read through it. And it blows my fucking mind. It, it just, it takes the Freud that I had heard about and known and turned him upside down. It, it made me realize that all that time, not only me, but the field as a whole had been playing a game of telephone about Freud and not really getting into what was really going on with him. Um, so just to summarize that book briefly, it's about how that first generation of psychoanalysts, Freud and Ferenczi and Fanichel and et cetera, overwhelmingly, um, you know, and then Jung was sort of the token Gentile. He was the diversity hire of the group, essentially. <laughs> um, yeah. But they were all, they were overwhelmingly Jewish people in a um, brutally anti-Semitic world. And they were all communist, Marxist. Um, and in Freud's case, the most conservative, he was a social Democrat. So they were all left-leaning. They were all members of this persecuted minority group um, defined as a racial minority group in Europe, right? Um, and, and, and it just, it, there was something so compelling for me. Like finally I found a story about psychoanalysis that had some resonance with my own story and the story of my community. Um, reading about how Freud, like it's almost too superficial to say like, oh, Freud was racist period the end. Like, yes, but if you dig into the what and the how, it's so much more tragic and complicated. Um, and it leads us to really um, like not just scrutinize Freud, but scrutinize the whole of psychoanalysis. And I would argue the whole of clinical psychology. Um, what I came to understand uh, were three things. One, questions of race and class 
and gender and sexuality were so embedded at the root of psychoanalysis and at the root of who Freud was, that he was, um, you know, to put in like very human terms, like he was this kid born on the outskirts of an empire in a community that was defined at the time as, oh, well, Jews are these half-breed races that, uh, you know, were produced somehow by interbreeding was the word with African peoples. So they're basically Africans. And and you have these weird cartoons people would draw of like a stereotypical image of a black person and a stereotypical image of a Jewish person. And the comic would say, see, basically the same thing. So Freud grows up in this world, navigating the precarity of his own family, both being poor and also being Jewish, witnessing ongoing uh, racialized violence, people being um, people being lynched, people being excluded from different professions. So he grows up in this world and both he and these other um, Jewish members of the psychoanalytic movement were very lucid. They thought very lucidly about this. That's what's so shocking. Um, When Ferenczi and Freud and Jung are coming back from the Clark lectures in the US, they're writing to each other saying, hey, do you notice how they treat black people in America? the way they treat us Jews in Europe. Yeah. In, in his uh, analysis of uh, Smiley Blanton, um, you know, who is an American, uh, American Gentile now sand, Freud asked him, hey, you know, uh, have you ever heard this idea that, uh, you know, Jews are in the same category as black people? And Smiley responds, no, I've, I've never heard that. And Freud says, well, I have. And they knew, right? Like they knew there was this association between blackness and Jewishness. And that at the time, at least, anti-Semitism had this relationship to anti-blackness. Further, um, Freud, Ferenczi, and in particular, um, Otto Fenichel, they actually wrote about this. They wrote about how society, to use Freud's language, seemed like a construction whereby a very limited few had control over all the resources and wealth, while the overwhelming majority of people toiled on their behalf. And Freud asked, well, why don't people revolt? Why don't people rise up? And he says again, quite lucidly, in a way that you could almost read from Freire or Fanon or Martin Barot, that the majority of the exploited might see in their masters their ideals, that they can become like the master. And this is facilitated through the creation of an other who is, is a scapegoat, but who also serves as a, as a kind of jumping off point for you to become like the master. What happens with Freud is that he and the other analysts simultaneously develop a theory of um, racism, and capitalism ultimately, and how that's invested with our desire, the desire to become like those at the top, the desire to avoid being stuck at the bottom and the precarity of being in some in-between space um, where you can have access to the top defined as whiteness, but always carrying the fear that if you're discovered, you'll fall right back down to the bottom. Freud again says this quite explicitly when he talks about how the pre-conscious this world between conscious and unconsciousness is like 
a mixed breed person, a Mischling, as he says in German, who looks white, but people can detect there's an otherness there that is not white and then push them back down to the bottom. What happens here with Freud? Um, Here I bring in uh, Claudia Tate's really classic paper, um, um, Psychoanalysis as Ally and Enemy to Mm -hmm. African-Americans, Freud and his Negro. And the paper, in many respects, is like so ignored in the literature, but it's so foundational to not just me, but to the kind of work that many other, um, both psychoanalysts of color and white psychoanalysts are wrestling with, in wrestling with anti-blackness and psychoanalysis, because she analyzes this, this joke that Freud apparently repeated like regularly. Um, the content of the joke was um, based on this comic, uh, this comic strip that showed a lion and the lion is hungry and there's a clock. And then the, 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 sub, the subject line, I guess, says 12 o'clock and no Negro. Freud would repeat that joke whenever um, one of his patients, and typically there's this one, interestingly enough, American in Alsan, who might be late to the session or, or wouldn't you know, show up or whatever. And Freud would repeat the joke, 12 o'clock and no Negro. Claudia Tate's analysis of this joke is that in repeating this joke, Freud is both evoking his racial anxieties about the association between Jewishness and blackness and the way both terms are excluded from whiteness. So he evokes that tension and simultaneously elides it by cutting the discursive connection between Jewishness and blackness so that he can then in a way in kind of his own fantasy become white. I said earlier that I see in that story, a story that resonates with my own story, because there's something profoundly Latin American about that. There's something profoundly Latin American in the idea that you can come to be associated with blackness, right? And that there's this anxiety to erase, blend away, um, and disavow blackness in order to pursue whiteness as such. Like even that idea of what it means to be hybrid, right? What it means to be in between, a lot of precarity there. Uh, I'm not going to say it's not, but there's also um, the possibility of playing this little game, right? In in Puerto Rico, much like in many um, Latin American countries, you can have 60, 365, like you can have a racial category for every day of the year. And many of those racial categories will do the labor of pointing towards blackness while also pointing away from it. Like, for example, the term trigueño, which depending on how the word trigueño is used, it can mean black. It can also mean black, but not really black, more kind of a dark burned brown. It can mean brown, right? So that's just kind of an example, not just of how... um, Blackness and anti-blackness work and how they work in my case within a Latin American context, but how it worked for Freud and how that anxiety is fundamental to psychoanalysis. The anxiety of avoiding a bottom, of reaching for the top and of disconnecting from that vulnerability and precarity. 
other folks like Ferenzi were a little more connected to that sense of vulnerability. People like Otto Fenichel, again, tried to continue that conversation about Jewishness and Blackness and anti-Blackness. But Freud, um, I would say the, the ultimate tragedy of Freud is that he both saw it and chose to turn away and disavowed it and disavowed it. I mean, I think it's like, I mean, really, I mean, there's a lot to unpack in everything that you just said, but I think it's really in a lot of the threads that I'm hearing, it's really, I mean, it's speaking to a great deal of what I was really interested in talking to you about today. And I think you, you've already gone here in a lot of ways, but I, I did really want to really start with sort of unpacking a little bit what you're framing as a sort of foundational um, kind of anti-Blackness and proximity to Blackness. And I think ambivalence and anxiety around a particular proximity to Blackness in the work of Freud and the early psychoanalysts. And so I think, you know, I would love for you to just spend, again, you were sort of in this just now, but just sort of maybe to sort of clarify a little bit. I mean, I think, you know, as you were just indicating, I think there's this broader cultural narrative within psychoanalysis writ large, which you expressed in your own biography, sort of coming up against your own kind of confusion and ambivalence about, about this narrative that psychoanalysis is sort of fundamentally Eurocentric in some way, or or sort of coded white in some way, um, which I think in the book you do really amazing, really phenomenal dialectical work to both hold the extent to which, as you're saying, there is a kind of ambivalence in Freud that does sort of sort of try and distance itself from a particular kind of blackness and therefore align itself with a particular kind of anti-blackness. Um, but then I think that yeah, I'm interested in hearing about the ways in which maybe these narratives about psychoanalysis as somehow fundamentally white or European elides or covers over or maybe um, dehistoricizes whiteness as a category, which, yeah. as you say, as you sort of talk about in the book and as you were just indicating, I mean, I think, you know, part of the historical work of whiteness is this category that's constantly reinventing itself and constantly sort of as a way of sort of shoring up other kinds of contradictions that emerge in capitalism, yeah. you know, it's sort of, um, so yeah, if you could just speak to that a little bit, just kind of how do you think about that kind of foundational yeah. relationship to blackness in psychoanalytic thought? Um, it's, it's really funny. Cause like, there's a way in which talking about how Freud and psychoanalysis is racist, but in a dehistoricized way, actually allows us to, it's like putting the bad object over there. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, Freud is racist, but you know, whether it's contemporary psychoanalysis, we're good, right. or whether it's other forms of therapy, like people have argued in the literature, no, cognitive behavioral therapy is a better fit for people of color because they're action oriented and care more about behavior and results, whatever. Or family systems people saying, no, people of color are very family oriented. Therefore, it's the better treatment, whatever, whatever. It allows us to avoid wrestling with what fundamentally Freud was wrestling with and what ultimately he transmitted across the generations, both in psychoanalysis and um, let's call it the, the, the psi fields more generally, social work, psychiatry, clinical psych, whatever. Um, in a really, um, again, sort of tragic way, this ambivalence gets played out 
in what I would say are two tracks. On the one track, you have a story many people in psychoanalysis have come to understand better, which is how when psychoanalysis was developing in Europe, especially in different social democracies, it allowed analysts to think very critically about a psychotherapy for the people, as Freud called for it in the aftermath of World War I, is essentially a psychotherapy for all. Um, they wanted a universal um, behavioral healthcare system to complement universal healthcare systems. Like they were very progressive in thinking about how to unpack the, the criminalization of LGBT people, how to think about the, the role of women's bodies and how women make meaning of their bodies in a patriarchal world, et cetera, et cetera. All that stuff's there. And, um, you know, I, as, as well as Elizabeth Danto and others, go into that history. But after the Second World War, as psychoanalysis um, escapes, to put in those terms, the effects of the war and the Shoah and the Nazis, ultimately, who went through this process of Aryanizing their clinics, like literally getting rid of all the psychoanalytic, particularly Jewish practitioners, and putting in practitioners who would basically you know, therapize people into the Nazi ideology. Um, in any event, many of these people land in Latin America in the 30s, the 40s. Some of them land in the United States. And when they land in the United States, they encounter that psychoanalysis, as it's been developing there, there's little relationship to what they learned with Freud and how they practiced clinically under Freud. And it meant that uh, there'd be these tensions between Jewish emigres and American analysts, both around clinical technique, because the American analysts would see uh, the European, um, European analysts as not Freudian enough, even though these people study with Freud. But the other issue, the other issue was that many people had to go underground with their politics, because this was also during a time of both anti-Semitism and McCarthyism. So being a socialist, a communist, et cetera, was dangerous. So people went underground with their political beliefs and their clinical ways of working. So this ambivalence, right, both the legacy of progressivism and of racial anxiety tips in the direction of assimilating into whiteness, assimilating into American society. And in that respect, psychoanalysis dies. Freud dies, and from the ashes arises the American Freud. Mm -hmm. The Freud of the I, the it, the over I, gives way to the Freud of the ego, the it, and the superego. Mm -hmm. Conversely, when psychoanalysis wound up in the hands of people in the Caribbean, Latin America, and even um, you know Black people in the United States, it took on a different tone, right? It was sort of obvious that psychoanalysis had something to say about race, anti-Blackness and so forth, had something to say about capitalism, had something to say about mental health in social context. But what that also meant is that you could see over time through the, the different people that I talk about in my book, different anxieties kept coming up, especially in the um, Latin American trajectory, right? Something that people talk about um, in regards to Freud is how he would write case studies and kind of erase the Jewishness of his patients and the role mm -hmm. of racism in those cases. Lo and behold, some of, some of his descendants in Latin America 
who otherwise, again, thought very lucidly about the role of anti-Blackness in Latin American society. And yet, because of this anxiety that if they explicitly named the race of their patients, people would say, oh, well, of course, they're struggling with mental illness. They're Jews. Or, of course, they're struggling with mental illness. They're Black. Because of that anxiety of talking explicitly about anti-Blackness and anti-Semitism, many of those Latin American workers and practitioners would erase the background of their clients. So um, in ways that I get into in the book, you can see how people in Latin America and North America and the Caribbean both use psychoanalysis in these progressive ways and also had these blind spots. And they specifically came up over and over again around anti-Blackness. An example that cuts across both psychoanalysis and liberation psychology would be the work of Paulo Freire. I love me, Freire. Many of us in the liberation psychology world love Paulo Freire, but there's, there's some real sh shit we have to talk about there because he's associated right with critical pedagogy and critical consciousness, but those ideas didn't originally come from him. They came from this tradition of black psychiatrists and sociologists in Brazil. If anything, he himself acknowledges that he got the term critical consciousness, conscientization, from Alberto Guerrero Ramos, who was an Afro-Brazilian sociologist who brought together Eric Fromm and Franz Fanon's work, much like Freire himself would do in his own work. Um, but the other issue with Freire is that in his books, he talks about the oppressor and the oppressed. And many people, you know, many people have read into that who the oppressed, oppressor and oppressed are. So queer studies have used Freire. Uh, critical race theory has used Freire, right? Everyone has used his work and it's lent itself to that openness because he spoke very broadly about oppressor and oppressed. But the fact is the communities he was working with were overwhelmingly black and indigenous communities. But he erased this, the specificity of race. And in some respects, um, in his early work, prioritized class. Now that's a, another tension that I don't really... I don't really unpack it fully in the book. I kind of allude to it, which is this tension of, is it chicken or is it lasagna? Is it race or is it class? And in the Latin American world, one of the ways that people avoid talking about race is by saying that in Latin America, it's not really about race, it's about class. But every time anybody says that, it's not like they're suddenly gonna go fight, you know, the workers' revolution to dismantle capitalism. So usually when they say it's not about race, it's class, it's a way of saying, I'm not going to do shit about either of these things. Right. In North America, you hear that, but then you also hear, well, it's, you know, class isn't really the main antagonism here. It's race. Right. But they don't necessarily, you know, go out into the world now to dismantle white supremacy. Right. right. These are, these are ways discursively of not really wrestling with both the intersection of those things and what then needs to happen to dismantle those things simultaneously. The right. genius of this tradition in psychoanalysis is that they wrestled with that question. They wrestled with that question quite lucidly and coherently, even as they, even as they struggled with the implications of what it would mean to talk about those things together. Yeah. All of this comes together, I think, in Franz Fanon's work. Franz Fanon. Where I was hoping to yeah. hoping to go next. I think, yeah, yeah. But but let me pause there and see if, if there's anything um, you'd like me to slow down on and unpack 
further. No, I mean, I think I'm with you. And I think, I mean, I was just thinking about as you're speaking, I'm, you know, Stuart Hall, you, you cite Stuart Hall multiple times in the book as sort of is one sort of of, of the kind of touchstones of the book in some ways. You sort of start the book inciting Stuart Hall and it just brings to mind this beautiful formulation from him. Race is the modality through which class is lived. And I think that formulation just sort of really hits the nail on the head in terms of this sort of inextricable bound upness of class and race as two kind of modalities that are constantly in interplay. And I think, you know, one thing that I was really struck by while you were just talking too is, and I think you you take up in really beautiful ways in the book is this sort of constant interplay between transmission and erasure, or there's this kind of constant transmission of ideas that get kind of smuggled from one context into another. Yeah. And, and within these sort of processes of transmission, both things that sort of could not have been there in the first place become discovered, but then also things end up becoming elided or invisibilized, as you say, which I think brings me right to sort of this discussion of Fanon, who you're just about to go into, which I think I'm I'm really fascinated by the the legacy, the contemporary legacy of Fanon, and I think he is a thinker who, in particular, is really prone to a really complex lineage and genealogy of transmis- transmission and erasure, and like particular aspects of Fanon becoming erased or elided, and particular aspects of Fanon becoming taken up in different contexts. Um, and so, I'd be really, I'd be yeah, really interested to just spend some time talking about Fanon. You know, it's a really meaty and central section of the book is this discussion of Fanon. Yeah. Um, and would love to just think a little bit about both the ways that you unpack Fanon within the context of the book and potentially what that might mean for contemporary inheritors of Fanonian studies, if that makes sense. Yeah. So this is the part of the interview where I get in trouble. Um, oh so yeah. Okay. Fanon Buckle is, up, everybody. Buckle yeah, yeah. up. Yeah. Hold on to your couches. Um, look, Fanon, like Freire, was again one of those figures where it felt like he was over there somehow, totally separate from psychoanalysis. Mm-hmm. And only through writing this book do I come to like really appreciate just how not just how psychoanalytic he is but what a foundation like a a stone that the builders refused of sorts for psychoanalysis um in thinking about like you know Stuart hall and the question of like what are the roots and what are the roots of these ideas um again if i go back to freud it's society and class inequality is maintained by not just racism, but but the desire that's invested in racism and racial hierarchy. And that cut across a lot of those early psychoanalytic thinkers that I mentioned. And it then comes up again in the Harlem Renaissance. And all of that then flows into Fanon, who himself was um, in this very interesting genealogy where um, on the one hand, um, there are people like uh, um, uh, Mirai Lopez, who was Cuban-born um, and later Spaniard psychoanalyst, psychoanalytic thinker, who trained uh, François de Tosquel in reading Marx and Freud and Lacan. And then it's with de Tosquel that Fanon gets some very some of his deeper 
clinical and psychologically informed training um, that those scared by the way was an analysis with Sander Amender, who was a debutant of uh, both Freud and Ferencik. Um, because there are these roots, Fanon both picks up on certain things that Freud and that early generation talked about, while also turned the ways in which Freud delighted the question of anti-Blackness on its head. Um, some of Fanon's major contributions do involve both this reading of psychoanalytic theory and then constantly taking it and turning it upside down and adding this other layer that comes both from his own experience as a Black man growing up in Martinique, but then being exposed to the world outside of Martinique, right? Like he, he was sort of from this Afro-Caribbean world where, you know, you don't necessarily have an awareness of like who and what you are racially because you're in this context where it's not that those discourses aren't there, they're often silenced. So colorism is silenced, racism is silenced. Um, when World War II broke out, he um, enlisted in the French armed forces to fight against the Nazis. And some of his friends, family, and even his mentor, Aimé Cesar, was like, why are you gonna go fight this white people war? And he was like, no, we have to fight oppression everywhere. And this is something that's against humanity and we're all human. And then by being in the armed forces and seeing how he's treated as a black man, whether he's in the trenches or in the streets, just the bare streets of Lyons in Paris, he comes to realize like, oh shit, there's the world of relationships, of recognition, of engagement. And then there's the world that I live in, what he calls the zone of non-being. And you can have all sorts of wonderful discussions about intersubjectivity and recognition and rupture and repair and all that stuff. And Fanon basically says, that's nice. You can chuck all that out the window when it comes to the issue of anti-Blackness. Now, this is where things get testy because the Afro-pessimists read Fanon one way. Um, they read him in a very ontological way, right? The notion of ontological anti-Blackness as something that's so superordinate that it, it's certainly built by humans, right? And it comes from social, political, economic structures, but it almost operates as a kind of meta-god-like, almost like a brainless god that keeps the world running. And then you have folks like Lewis Gordon, who is much more in a phenomenological existentialist tradition. And so he's much more likely to read Fanon from that lens. And I try to read Fanon in a way that uh, doesn't just synthesize this both, but recognizes that Fanon himself says it's both. He says very clearly that we have to understand a distinction between existence and ontology. Existence being the realm of, you know, your own personal experience, how you move about in the world, your relationships, how you make meaning, but that that is separate from ontology, which is a world of structure that both is beyond experience, but that also structures experience. And probably the, um, the most keen example that he gives of this is his analysis of um, the character uh, Jean Venus from uh, uh, René Maran's novel, Un homme par la autre. I probably butchered that in French. Uh, but basically like um, a man for others, I think is the translation. And the basic gist of the character Jean Venus is that he's a black Italian man in a romantic relationship with a white woman. And, uh, you know, they're getting closer, there's more intimacy. And he says, whoa, wait a minute, this relationship will never work 
because the world is fundamentally anti-Black and it's better if I just end this relationship here. Fanon doesn't say, in, in a way that Afro-pessimists might say, well, of course, you're, you know, it, your feelings are exactly right as they are. Now, of course, they're valid, but Fanon hedges a little bit and says, the issue here isn't just an anti-Black world. The issue is that if we pay attention to um, Jean Venus's behavior, he's somebody who has a profound anxiety about abandonment. And so he uses the ontological register of anti-Blackness, and he kind of sutures it with his own anxieties to then come to the conclusion that their love will never work out and he should end this relationship. Mm-hmm. In doing this kind of psychoanalytic literary analysis, Fanon both makes this distinction, but also gives us a model of how to understand um, not just Black subjectivity, but the subjective experience of individuals and how they make meaning of an anti-Black world that has no meaning. It has no sense. Um, This relates to the other distinction that Fanon makes, where in his interactions with Jean-Paul Sartre, he says, look, of course, Jewish people are persecuted through anti-Semitism, et cetera. But the issue that I, as a Black man, struggle with is not a matter of the ideas people have of me. It's not primarily a matter of stereotypes, although it does include that. It's primarily a fact that no matter where I go, my body follows. And wherever, my, wherever I go, my body is always already defined as a non-being, right? So he does make that distinction between different grammars of suffering, which is what Frank Wilderson um, would say. He makes that distinction quite clearly. And yet, and this is the critical point, and yet he does not give up on notions of multiracial class solidarity. He doesn't give up on internationalism. He doesn't give up on the fact that um, relationships and mutual recognition are an impossible preposition in an anti-Black world. And yet, he writes, today I believe in the possibility of love, which is why I trace yeah. its imperfections. So there was something that, it's not, it's not really dialectical. Like he's not just, he's not balancing between two different positions. It's really one position that says, um, um, to put it in these terms, love is a broken proposition in the context of anti-Blackness. However, to make the conclusion that therefore, um, let, let me put it this way, different reactions to, let's say, the primal scene of anti-Blackness, right? And that all of us are trying to relate to, one reaction might be, let's call it a Afro-depressivism. You know what? Fuck this shit o'clock. Nothing you right. can do about the system. You know, I should just chill at home, play Mario Kart, right? Then you can have a kind of naive Afro-optimism or even an Anglo-optimism. Like, uh, oh, you know, if we just work hard and we keep at it, you know, we will overcome things, we'll get better. The kind of position that Fanon carves out is if there is no meaning, because wherever you go, you're caught in the logics of anti-Blackness, then fundamentally, there's nothing that can really prevent you from taking a leap in fulfilling your desire, whatever your desire is. Mm-hmm. Okay. There's a fundamental freedom there. There's sort of a... Yeah. Yeah. There's a kind of fundamental freedom. Like the state of law is if you do this, then that will happen to you, right? 
So, you know, don't go into this fenced in area because there's a dog and it'll bite you. Right. And anti-black logic is essentially wherever you go, the whole world bites. What Fanon is basically saying is, well, wait a minute. If wherever I go, I'm getting bitten, you have no hold over my body. I can go wherever the fuck I want. Right. So if what I want to do is burn shit down, why, why shouldn't I burn shit down? Might as well. If, if what I want to do is advocate for certain structural changes, et cetera, then it, it's, it's a giving permission to one's desire. That not only has um, a clinical implication when it comes to working with Black clients, but it also has an implication for working with non-Black clients, whether that's white clients or non-Black people of color. Because what Fanon suggests is that it's not just Black people. Everybody's taking some relationship to the scene of anti-Blackness. And everyone's desire is in some way founded upon that dynamic, right? So Freud, of course, brutalized by um, the dangers of anti-Semitism and this association of Blackness. But it's precisely that that then allows a licensing, right? Um, to make a more kind of close and personal analogy, I'm Puerto Rican. Have I faced discrimination and police violence and precarity? Absolutely. Definitely. But does the fact that I have straight hair and white skin give me a kind of licensing that other Puerto Ricans may not have? You better believe it. Yeah. Right? My pain is real. Absolutely. Um, it's, not a, it's not a quantitative distinction. Who has suffered more than whom? It's a qualitative one. It's about the quality, not just of your pain, but how the world responds to that pain. Mm -hmm. Does it try to heal it, address it, repair it, make some sort of change? Or does it treat it as somehow foundational to this whole structure? So in that respect, Fanon um, inherits Freud's anxieties, but actually verbalizes them. He actually puts them into words, right? You could think of the book as an account of an intergener intergenerational transmission of trauma. And both in- Your field, book or, F or Fanon's book? Oh, uh, both. <laughs> <laughs> both yeah. are, are intergenerational yeah. transmissions of trauma. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, because it's always, you know, whether it was your great grandparent, whomever, they're transmitting a problem they could not solve in a hidden hope that we will be able to address that problem or at least tweak it enough to then pass it on to the next generation so that they can work with it in a different way. So Fanon, as I wrote about in the book, has its own limitations in other ways, but he was, again, taking these ideas and issues, reworking them, and then moving them forward. God, I mean, there's so much juicy stuff here. I feel like I could go on and on and on, but, you know, I'm just really, again, just struck by... Um, this, yeah, the ways in which you're really sort of trying to kind of suture what are thought of as kind of gaping splits, you know, and, right. and I guess, you know, we don't have a lot more time, but I would love to just spend a little bit more time on maybe kind of land on a, a discussion of, you know, we've, we've touched on liberation psychology and the kind of South American inheritance of this particular tradition. Um, but I think, in thinking about Fanon and this kind of relay of subjectivity, 
what are the ways that this sort of gets taken up or tweaked or reevaluated within the context of liberation psychology? Um, and you do a lot of sort of really, really beautiful work, I think, in the book in sort of also kind of drawing some connections between liberation psychology, some of its Fanonian legacies and interventions and the ways that that syncs up with or is distinguished from other kind of contemporary relational theories in psychoanalysis, whether it's mentalization from Peter Flanagy and, as you were saying, different discussions around kind of relationality and intersubjectivity. How does that get skewed within the South American context or how does that get taken up? Yeah, no, that's an excellent question. I mean, because Fanon becomes very critical to Freire and then mm-hmm. both become really critical to Martin Baró, both of them are doing the same thing of like moving, you know, taking the baton and moving it forward, but then in other respects, repeating some of those same problems. So as I mentioned earlier, Freire, you know, does this wonderful writing in his early work that nonetheless elides the issue of race and racism. Later, Freire um, modifies that and is able to like take that more into account. Um, Martin Baró similarly kind of had this focus um, on oppression that centered more class, but also the the post-colonial context of Latin America. And he had some things um, that he said in regards to, you know, racism and sexism, but they weren't, I think, as formulated as these other ideas. Um, I think there's two things that happen there. One is that, to put it in these terms, Freud and Fanon, although they had a vision for what social change could look like, they were much more pessimistic compared to Freire and Martin Maro, who had a kind of optimism in the face of violence and precarity. It's not just that, that they had like sunny tin colored lenses. Um, it's that for Martin Maro in particular, he witnessed so much death and carnage, um, both as somebody who grew up in Spain in the aftermath of the Franco regime and fascism and so forth, but also death squads in El Salvador and more broadly Latin America. He himself was a victim of uh, those death squads that ended his life, along with a number of uh, other liberation theologians at the Universidad Centroamericana of San Salvador. Um, so in some respects, you know, Fanon passed away at age 36 from leukemia and Martin Baró was gunned down. So in some respects, like both of their legacies and what they could contribute were cut short. Um, but what I would say in some is that this entire tradition um, at a psychological level talks about how social systems shut down our capacity to see one another's humanity. And it depends on shutting those capacities down through what Martin Barreto called la mentira, the lie, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. The lie that, again, there's a top, there's a bottom. The lie that there has to be a bottom, that there has to be those who suffer so that there can be those who can have the possibility, right, of having some kind of life. And that that um, leads to a polarization among communities, peoples, and even families, where everyone is trying to figure out where they sit on the totem pole. 
and that this happens in families, this happens in communities, this happens in societies. Now, there's a dynamism to how I bring in mentalization. Oh, give me some spam caller, apparently. Um, there's a, a dynamism to the concept of mentalization as I'm using it here. Um, mentalization refers to um, three things. One is the difficulty that we have in making contact with each other, whether that's intimately, relationally, whatever. So the difficulty we have making that contact, then you have, I think, mentalization as it's commonly understood, which is really just one level of mentalization. And it's not even the most central one, in my opinion, which is mentalization as the capacity of building a model in your mind of other minds, right? So being able to pick up on if somebody is feeling down and be like, hmm, they're feeling down. Let me see if I can take care of them in some way, right? So mentalization, also called reflective functioning, as trying to think of others in terms of internal states. Um, that's kind of the definition that then psychoanalysts fight about, right? Relational and attachment-based psychoanalysts will talk about how, you know, mentalization is good, is important because we have to help people think about their minds and about others. And uh, Lacanian analysts might say, that's bullshit. There's no relation between self and other. All of these things we develop are constructions. We're reducing the other to the notion of the same, right? And there's kind of an inborn decolonial critique there as well, right? Because we can develop an image of somebody else's mind. We can see a mind there, but see it as immoral, see it as bad, as subhuman, right? But still somewhat representable, which is altogether distinct from not minding other minds at all, which is what Unknown, and I think in a deeper way, the Afro-pessimist would argue is at the core of anti-Blackness. It's, again, not just stereotypes and people having bad thoughts about you. It's not representing it as a human being at all, right? That leads me to the, the second um, component to mentalization, which is what in the empirical literature is called the opacity of other minds, right? So that's the recognition not that you know what's there, but that there's a there there, and it is unknown to me. I cannot grasp the other. I do not know what is in the other's mind, and it is terrifying. I don't know if I approach this other, if they will kiss me or kill me, if they will hug me or hurt me. And yet, because I value the presence of a mind there, and I value a certain closeness with it, I'm going to approach and maybe I'll get a kiss. Maybe I'll get killed, right? That's a different way of thinking about what mentalization is than just having a copy of somebody's mind in your own mind. So I lay all that to then talk about what I call political mentalization, right? So mentalization, as it's typically discussed, is in like infant mother relationships, interpersonal relationship, right? Patient therapist relationship that you're trying to help people mentalize self and other. And within this broader understanding, it's being able to mentalize, yes, you know, what's your best understanding of what's going through your mind and somebody else's along with holding the fact that sometimes you have no fucking clue why you did what you did. And that's okay. 
Sometimes we don't fully understand what's going on in our minds. Sometimes we don't fully understand what's going on in somebody else's. And that's also really critical, especially I think in, in Lacanian modes of working where the goal is to keep the patient guessing and for you to keep guessing as to what's really going on. They wouldn't like me saying this, but that is definitionally mentalizing activity. Not that you arrive at a conclusion on the other, but that you're wrestling with this other to begin with, you know, this kind of prioritizing of radical difference. What I call political mentalization is taking all of that and contextualizing it, putting it in a broader social and political context, right? So I'm essentially fusing um, critical consciousness as Paulo Freire described it, and then more broadly, Alberto Guerrero Ramos and the tradition of Afro-Brazilian psychoanalytic thinking, and taking that, which is already, I would argue, a psychoanalytic term, and then bringing it together with contemporary ways of thinking about um, basically the psyche and the other. Um, that it's not just, for example, in a clinical context, that, oh, yes, we should talk about race with our patients. It's rather paying attention to moments when minding fails. Mm -hmm. And it fails not just because you have some bad thoughts in your head, but because there is a, a structural context that sets us up to fail. It sets us up to not see another's humanity. And the answer isn't, oh, well, now I have to give more recognition. Now I have to give a repair, right? That's a kind of more relational response. Um, yeah. There was a recent paper uh, by Jane Catholic and then a series of discussions of that paper, maybe you've seen it, where it's like, oh, you know, shouldn't, don't we just need to work hard at repairing ruptures with black patients and patients of color? And after a series of beatdowns in those discussions, <laughs> everybody starts to get to this place of, you know what? You can't repair something that's been broken for 500 years. And even then, a lot of relational people struggle with that because they're like, oh, but how do we? And uh, my basic point, which I, I touch on in the book, but really more in my, my clinical papers more recently, is that, yes, you know, uh, working with ruptures is very important. Of course, we should work with enactments, blah, blah, blah. But if it just stays as an intersubjective mediation, it, it's, it's a waste of time. It has to be used as a window into this broader world of structure and hierarchy and power um, so that you're not just reaching after another mind, but you're reaching after a world that makes the minding of some minds possible and other minds impossible. That then leads us to um, a different issue that if as a clinician, whether you're psychoanalytic or whatever you are, if, if you care about issues of racial and social justice, the answer is not to be found in the consulting room. If these ruptures result from a structural problem, and part of what we're doing as clinicians is trying to mentalize structures, not necessarily even understand them, but reach after what it is that's really going on here, that necessarily points us to a world, a world that it's not necessarily that it's in need of repair, this is now, uh, again, the Pannonian side of me. It's a world that may need to get burned down. Yeah. It, it's not just let's tweak these systems, you know, in this kind of neoliberal way. Um, really, like, 
we got to hit the reset button. And of course, this is where Fanon provokes the most anxiety, right? Him talking about the end of the world. But listen, let's get very concrete here. We have cities in the United States that have hit the reset button on policing, started from zero. And it has not led to pandemonium. It's actually led to better communities and structures and systems. So hitting the reset button is good because we get to start over. And that, in some respects, is kind of the, um, the end point for me of, well, actually, the starting point of this book. Like, I get to the end of this book, and uh, I find myself putting Freud and Marx and Fanon in dialogue and realizing that where I ended is very different from when I started. And where I ended is that, yes, repair is important. Of course, we should respond to those moments in the room. But that is insufficient. Therapeutic action must be combined with political action or else what the fuck are we even doing? Well, Daniel, I mean, I think that's a beautiful place to end. I mean, usually at the end of episodes, we also just make space to just kind of touch base around what people are working on right now or sort of if you've got any projects on the boilerplate. Um, You're writing or you've got a million things on the boilerplate. Yeah, Um, it's... um, it's a busy time. I mean, um, I guess academically is what you're wondering, right? I mean, like writing and whatever. whatever, politically, academically, okay. writing things. What are you up to? Yeah, sure. So I'll, I'll, um, um, I'll just kind of lay it out as it comes to mind. So this, so this book was initially meant to be like a book where there's a part on history and theory, a part of clinical applications and a part on politics and activism. Realized very quickly that this, this is like a trilogy. So I'm actually working on uh, kind of the second book in this trilogy, which is going to be, um, it originally started as kind of a treatment guide on working with um, severe personality disorder and complex trauma among communities of Mm -hmm. color. But I realized um, I'm really pivoting towards making that um, almost like a, a psychotherapy text, but instead of here's Freud and here's Carl Rogers and here's Skinner and whomever, um, it's really, it's really about flipping the premises of psychotherapy in its head. Like, let's talk about race and class as endemic to psychotherapy, and how to talk about um, a way of talking with clients that yes, pays attention to what I call the horizontal mode of relatedness, attachment, etc., and also talks about the vertical mode within which we relate, where we're always tracking where we sit on the totem pole. So, so that's one. Um, and then more broadly, I've been writing a lot about really how to take a lot of these ideas and make them very concrete and clinical work. Um, so I have a, um, you know, a couple papers in the pipeline, one's coming out in psychoanalytic psychology on, it's kind of a primer on Fanon, but Fanon's clinical papers and how a Fanonian way of thinking clinically gives a different foundation as like one else says, because it's a new understanding, right? To, to think about how Fanon is a clinician who thinks about society, not just a political theorist. Um, I would say it's a return to Fanon and being able to see him clearly, perhaps for the first time. Great. Well, Daniel, I am so thrilled by all the work that you're doing. I'm excited to, to keep up with it. And again, it's just, it's really humbling and amazing to be in conversation with what feels like a sort of fellow traveler and um, and keep keep it up and thanks for making the time 
and take good care. And everybody listening, thanks for tuning in. Um, until next time, ciao. Thank you.